So, good evening, Dharma friends. <laughs> um, so tonight, I would like to uh, discuss one of my favorite topics these days, or one of the things, or I should say, better to say that it's something that I'm, I'm working with myself, that I'm finding an interesting uh, focus of practice. And what I'm going to talk about is mana, or conceit. Everybody's going, yeah. <laughs> so I'd like to start off by saying that when the Buddha taught Rahula his son, when he was starting to teach him how to meditate, before he started to teach him how to meditate, he actually gave him some pre-meditation instructions or some guidelines. And there was actually 10 things that he told the Buddha, I mean, he told Rahula about before he taught him Satipatthana, before he taught him Vipassana meditation, insight or mindfulness. And so the first four things I'm not going to talk about, but they are the four uh, elements. He actually taught him how to understand his heart-mind was like earth and how it was like fire and how it was like water and like air. And then the second four things that he taught Rahula were he taught him the four Brahma-viharas or the four um, very positive mental factors, you know, of metta, uh, friendliness, karuna, compassion, mudita, sympathetic joy, and dupeka, equanimity. The ninth thing that he um, taught to Rahula to prepare him to meditate was he taught him how to counteract lust, you know, how to deal with lust. And then finally, the last thing he taught, he, uh, taught Rahula right before he taught him how to meditate was how to counteract the conceit of I am. And it was like one of the most important and highest ways to prepare him to meditate. So I think that it's fitting for us to hear what he said about that as we continue to do our practice. How might we work with this? So, here's a quote by Wei Wu Wei. Why are you unhappy? Because 99.9% of everything you do is for yourself, and there isn't one. (laughs) (laughs) So, um, conceit in... uh, the way that the Buddha taught it is pretty different than the way we understand conceit in Western uh, psychology or Western philosophy. I love it. it was, it's so much more dimensional. So conceit, uh, what's the meaning of it? You know, we could think of it as pride um, or um, pride or just thinking very well of uh, ourselves. 
But the way, uh, probably a better definition of the way that it's understood within uh, the Abhidhamma or the Vasudhimaga is that it's measurement. It's measurement of ourself to others. So how many ways can we measure ourselves? <laughs> so the Abhidhamma definition of conceit is fancying. Fancying ourselves. Vain imaginings. Its characteristic is haughtiness. I love that term, haughtiness. What is haughtiness? Self-praise. Its function is self-promotion and self-exaltation. The manifestation of it, how does uh, conceit manifest? Uh, one way is desire to advertise oneself like a banner. How did he know about Facebook? <laughs> I mean, by definition, isn't that what it is, banners? It's like banners. I think uh, Patrice and uh, Kamala both said, you know, how many likes did I get? How big is my banner? Other manifestations are narcissism and vainglory. And what's the proximal cause? It's actually greed. It's a form of greed. Um, there's some kind of distinctions that it's greed not associated with wrong view, but that's kind of a point I'm not going to go into, but it's kind of interesting. And uh, so, mana conceit is to be considered a form of lunacy. <laughs> and it's so interesting, while, um, while um, you know, looking for uh, references for this talk, Oh, that's probably a little bit too. Never mind. Okay, so more about... Uh, so, you know what's really interesting is that the Buddha actually taught three ways that uh, selfing happens. And this is an interesting distinction. There's uh, a one way that this is mine, and this is mine, is actually um, associated with tanha or greed in the mind. So this is mine, I have to have this. And uh, the things that we possess, you can see, you could just imagine that there's an element of identity associated with that, right? What you possess. There's a form of identity around that. And this is the one I'm talking about tonight. This is the second type of uh, grasping. And this is this I am. It's really about identity formations. What kind of identities that we have. And that's what mana specifically is about. And I'm going to talk more about that. And um, it's said that this type of um, identity formation, or this part of eyeing and mying, arises through conceit or mana. And then, interesting, there's a third type of selfing or um, dimension of this complex. And that is, this is myself. And so you can see the first one is associated with possessions, the second one is associated with identities, and this third one is really just associated with like belief in an ongoing soul. A soul, S-O-U-L, a soul. And um, 
So I'm talking about the second kind, this I am, these identities that we have. And according to Buddhist psychology, there's three different kinds of conceit. (coughs) There is the one that is very probably known to all of us, superiority conceit, right? It is easily manifested in arrogance, bragging, proclaiming our excellence to the world. Like right now on retreat, you might be rehearsing what you're going to tell all your friends and family when you go back. (laughs) Wow, it was so hard, but I stuck it in there. I was a really good yogi, and I was this and I was that. And this is what I, this is the insight that I have. So there's that, it's the superiority conceit. And then, uh, as you can imagine, another dimension of conceit or eyeing or mying or identities, of course, is inferiority conceit. That's a really interesting one too. And that's uh, familiar territory to many of us, right? A chronic sense of unworthiness that's so, you know, pervasive in our culture. You know, the torment of just never measuring up. And it's all based on measuring, right? We're measuring ourselves against others. We're not good enough. I think many of us have a daily diet of inferiority conceit. And inferiority conceit gathers in the same places as superiority conceit in the body, in the mind, in appearances, in things that we've done in the past or haven't done, things that we're committed to doing in the future or think it's impossible for us to do. These are all identities. And then the Buddha has another dimension that is really brilliant that Western psychology or Western social science hasn't caught up to yet. It is equality conceit. What is equality conceit? Equality conceit. Yes, equality conceit. And that could be, um, it could actually contribute to a sense of real disillusionment, like, wow, this practice is really difficult, and I can't do it, and I know nobody else in this room is doing it either. Or even just, you know, when you see other people maybe in the hall that are sleepy, it's like, you know, yeah, I know what that's like, and... None of us, you know, none of us are doing any better than any others. It's, it could be an expression of disillusionment with human possibility. And then I think that there's ways that it's manifested in society outside of, you know, our wonderful time here together. And that would be like, you know, 
no one should get any special treatment whatsoever because everybody is equal. Everybody has an equal chance to do well in the society. So, you know, affirmative action is a bad thing. And, uh, you know, coming on retreat, you know, we provide good food for everybody so no one should ask for any special, no one should ask for any special treatment whatsoever because, you know, we all essentially have the same capacity. Um, one of the stories about equality conceit was uh, after Al Gore um, came out with his documentary An Inconvenient Truth after it was released, all of these um, journalists went out and published his electricity bill. It was really high. But it was a way to kind of like knock him down to size, right? It was like, you're no better than us. You know, you're out there sp sprouting all of this um, propaganda about climate crisis and, you know, you're your electricity bill is just as big as ours. And then, so that, those are the three types of mana, three types of mana, superiori superiority mana, inferiority mana, and then equality mana. And then, there is another dimension of um, another dimension of mana that the Buddha talked about 2,600 years ago. This is just amazing to me. Um, there's four kinds of me measurement, and uh, the first type of measurement that equality, uh, <coughs> superiority, or inferiority could apply to is jata mana, or measurement of birth. Wow. Measurement of birth. So that would be if you're born to a famous family or you're born in a special town or a city or a special nation. <laughs> Nationalism, patriotism, U.S. immigration status. I have a dear friend that uh, I've, you know, known for many years. I guess telling the story is part of association conceit, but I'm going to tell it to you because it was really sweet for me. And uh, he, he lived in Seattle for a long time and he worked at our research center. He was a researcher there. And um, he left Seattle to come back to Minneapolis because he's from here. He's from Minneapolis. And I saw him, you know, the whole time I was in Minneapolis. He, uh, it was because of him that I, I did a day-long retreat for the uh, George Family Foundation. And, um, you know, it was just wonderful to spend time with him. He's got two twin boys. And uh, so I was having breakfast with him before I came up here last Friday morning. And uh, he was telling me, I, I was asking him, he lives out of Chocopee right now, but he was going to move back to the city. And, well, he actually had applied for a job to run the uh, tribal housing program in, in, uh, in, in uh, Minneapolis. And I said, oh, that would be a good job for you. And he, and he said, yeah, so the uh, whole tribal housing 
Development is actually named after my mother. I know. And I said, really? He said, yeah, it's actually, my friend's name is Tony Stately. And I don't know if those of you who live in Minneapolis, there's like a Stately Street in Minneapolis. And uh, I never knew that. And he was just telling me, oh yeah, my mother was one of the big, you know, civil rights leader uh, in Minneapolis and like that. And I just was taken back that I had known him for so long and I had never known that. And it was like, wow, he really, you know, that was the kind of thing, knowing this mind-body process. <laughs> I don't know how many times I would have told people that. You know? <laughs> so that was, uh, you know, that was actually him letting go. I mean, you know, in my view, that would have been one source of a lot of birth conceit, right? But he didn't have it. It was He was really humble around that. It was so interesting. I felt really close to him and said, yeah, you know, you're a, you've got some very good qualities going on there. You know, one big birth, uh, birth mana that has had a huge impact just intergenerationally is something called the Doctrine of Discovery. <laughs> You're probably saying, just don't go there. <laughs> I'm sure many of you know what that is. It was uh, the 15th century papal bulls telling any explorer before they were going to travel the world that if you um, met anybody along the way in your travels that wouldn't uh, that wouldn't adopt Christianity, you had every right to either kill them or enslave them. And you know what? In 1823, the U.S. Supreme Court actually up upheld that doctrine in a famous court case in 1823. You know, these are the things that we have no idea, these invisible ways that birth mana shows up that we really don't understand how they're manifesting as we walk around the world. But this is exactly what the Buddha said to be aware of. He taught Rahula, look for where I am is manifesting when you're meditating. You know, that was one of the things he looked at. And it's difficult to open to, but you know, we could open to it and have compassion rise, compassion for ourselves and for those poor people that actually put those things into place and just work to decondition that in ourselves, right? Now, this second type of mana, so there's four types of mana. The second type, oh my gosh, this mind-body process right here, it is called panya mana. Panyamana. That's conceit of knowledge, education, or skills. <laughs> My friends are forever saying, Panyamana, Panyamana. <laughs> because, you know, I'm a bit of an egghead. I'm a pretty big, pretty big of an egghead. And it's part of my identity. I can see it. You know, I can see it. And uh, it's interesting. 
the conceit of education knowledge. Um, you know, one of in some of the suttas it says that it's ridiculous to be um, to have uh, pride or identities identities associated with this because you went to school and somebody else taught you all that stuff, right? <laughs> but we have this strong identity associated with these, this education and this degree, or this profession. Think about the profession that you have. That's a form of panyamana too. This um, better than, you know, I understand better, I can pick at things really quickly, I have access to all of this literature, you know. I can connect this to what the Buddha taught or that to what the Buddha taught. It's a source of identity formation. You know, it's an identity coming up. Maybe you're a psychologist or a physician or there's a lot of eggheads in this room. (laughs) How does that uh, show up in our identities? Or maybe a philosophy professor. And then there is worse than uh, panyamana, worse than panyamana. That's really interesting too, and I have seen that. I remember once with a beloved relative, you know, and we were driving somewhere and we were talking about college and higher education, and she was saying, oh my gosh, all you college educated people just think you're better than everybody. I just don't want any of that. And I don't even know if I want my kids to have that. So that was an identity around not having an education, right? There was an I am right there as well. And there could be that, and there could also be just a sense of identity associated with people look down on me, I don't belong there. You know, a sense of self-pity of like, I don't really belong there, that's not my place, my identity is other than that. And then there's equal to panyamana. And that would be, everybody has an opportunity to um, get an education, so, you know, no one should have special treatment in that regard. And I think each of these manas is one of those things that you could never say exactly what it means, right? Because it means something based on a very specific situation. You know, how Panyamana shows up for me or anybody else, for me, 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 or anybody else. It really is a manifestation of causes and conditions in the moment. And, you know, we understand it or we're able to see it in our practice because there is a, there is a I am happening, an identity being created in the moment. So here is uh, actually a saying on that from Utejaniya. He says, holding on to a perceived idea or view of what insight might look like is dangerous, as it leads to pride when you have an experience that seems like it fit an idea. The nature of reality is beyond ideas and views. Ideas and views are merely the work of delusion. So this, you know, there's actually a lot of panyamana, you know, I didn't even mention it, but panyamana associated with what insights we might have. Like, I'm in the POI, I'm going through the progress of insight. 
right? I've been through that point of the progress of insight. Actually, Kamala's, Kamala's uh, book that she helped translate and gave a beautiful uh, interview recently is about that. And she warns against people really reading that and trying to kind of loc them, locate themselves on that map. That's an absolute form of Panyamata. And as Utejunia says, if you think you know what an insight looks like, you know, that's exactly what's going to keep you from having an insight. So this is what Wei Wu Wei says about that. The Buddha specified, as long as there is one to suffer, he or she will. As long as there is one to suffer, he or she or they will. So that is uh, Panyamana, better than, worse than. And then, so how does Panyamana show up for you as you leave this retreat? It's like, oh yeah, boy, I had such a great... Uh, I had such a great insight into impermanence. Boy, I'm feeling freer already. <laughs> That'll be interesting for you to take a look at that because that's going to happen. You're going to have an identity, an identity associated with what you might have seen here, right? And that'll just be, you know, I'm at another level of Buddha, Buddhism now. I'm a senior practitioner. <laughs> Are you laughing because you have seen that or what? <laughs> hey, I just graduated from the teacher training program. <laughs> oh my gosh, you know what I did now actually related to that? Oh my God, you know what I did? I'm so embarrassed, but I'm going to tell you. <laughs> I actually emailed the woman who was uh, kind of like the coordinator of it, Sarah Sparling. <laughs> I can't believe I did this. And I said, you know, so what letter should I put after my name after this? <laughs> and is it like IMS, SRMC, RT, retreat teacher? Or <laughs> boy, that's really, that is Panyamana, boy. But it's funny to see it, right? It's just... It's so ridiculous, it's funny to see it and say, wow, that is another identity, right? So interesting. And then, um, so that is Panyamana. And then the next one, you're going to love this one, Dhanamana. <laughs> Dhanamana, conceit of wealth. The conceit of the rich is called Dhanamana. Nowadays, there are so many people possessing some wealth who seldom associate with the poor. So the better than in the uh, Dhanamana. And, you know, these things, you know, the other thing I wanted to say, I should have said in the beginning, is that these are considered within the Abhidhamma as latent torments. They're considered to be really unconscious impulses that, you know, are very deeply rooted. And we only, you know, decondition them by seeing them. They're latent torments. So it's, it's, you know, very common that it's very difficult to see these things. You know, you see them with really strong um, mindfulness and in 
retreat practice. You know, not always, right? Because that's a view. <laughs> but, um, you know, that's one way that you see it. You know, if you have strong mindfulness, I'm sure you could see it in your day-to-day walk of life. Particularly, I actually am on the lookout for Panyamana for me because I know that that's a huge part of my identity, the eyeing and mying, which is where suffering comes from, right? Any of that clinging is, that's where suffering and attachment comes from. But conceit of wealth, Dhanamana. So it's better than, better than. And, um, you know, how does that show up on retreat? So maybe some people paid like the uh, highest level of, well, at the big retreat centers, you know, you can play, you can play a high level, a medium level, or you could get partial scholarship, right? So, you know, it could be that the people who pay the highest level or even special donors to the institutions, they don't realize it, but they expect special treatment, right? They want to interview with the founding Dharma teachers. You know, they, they have a sense of entitlement that may or may not be seen, really. But there's a lot to see there. I deserve to be treated better. I should get a better room. I actually just had this because <laughs> I'm sitting P2 or part two of the IMS three-month retreat. I'm sitting for six weeks. I'm teaching the first six weeks and sitting the second six weeks. And I guess I had Panyamana because I emailed the uh, registrar and said, can I get a really good room? <laughs> <laughs> I admit it. That was definitely Panyamana. You know, they want to interview with the best teachers. And actually, we have a term for donors. We call, uh, they're part of the whole, uh, uh, the whole group of special needs yogis. <laughs> <laughs> but in a loving way, in a very, very loving way. We have to love it all. We can't, you know, we're wagging our finger, but hey, man, it is right here. So we have to be gentle with it and open to it with some humor and some interest. Like, wow, that's so interesting, right? It is so interesting. And then what about better, uh, worse than Don Amana? Worse than Don Amana. What does that look like? You know, I had to apply for a scholarship, so everybody's looking at me. They know that I'm a scholarship baby. And there's an identity associated with that. There's an identity associated with not having money. Absolutely. I can't afford that. You know, what kind of life is everybody living? I don't fit in there. You know, there's a strong identity associated with that. Or can be. There can be a strong identity associated with that. And then same as Dana Mana. You know, everybody should pay the same. Everybody should get the same treatment regardless of what they pay. And you know, these things come up again. There's no one way it manifests. It manifests giving, giving causes and conditions and what we are, what identities that we're bringing to this moment. What identities are we bringing to this moment? And then... So the first one is, uh, the first mana is, what's the first mana? Jatamana, birth mana, the second is panya, the third is wealth, dana mana. And then the fourth is something that we all can totally relate to, 
Uh, I don't know the Pali term of it, but it's conceit of appearance. Boy, that's very popular in our, in our culture, isn't it? The conceit of physical beauty. Better than is, we know what better than is. And, you know, there's some cultural specificity to that, but there's also some, you know, um, I think a Western notion of what's beautiful has definitely, you know, been imperialistic across the globe. So what is beautiful? Tall, thin, healthy, you know, whatever attractive is, straight hair, light skin, you know, that's beautiful. Worse than fat, short, you know, unsymmetrical features, dark skin, curly hair. And then equal to. What is equal to conceit of appearance look like. Isn't that interesting that even with when you're with your peers, you know, where there should be some safety or there should be some sense of solidarity, there can be that measurement, where, you know, the measurement. Measurement, you know, how do I compare, uh, you know, what do I look like compared to this other person? And all of these, you know, birth mana, uh, knowledge or uh, wisdom, insight mana, uh, money mana, or appearance mana, it's all based on measuring. It's all based on having our identity constructed by us compared to external things. It's all about that, right? It's our identity is based on something external to us. It's based on um, conditioned existence. And that in and of itself, we can just reflect that there's a lot of pain in that. You know, could there ever be a sense of well-being, you know, when our well-being is how we compare externally? It's a lot of suffering. (coughs) But, just as the Buddha... You know, he was a physician of the time. He had the diagnosis. He had the cause. And what did he have? He had the remedy, right? He gives a remedy of what we do about this. So what is the remedy? How do we overcome conceit? So in one, in the Majjhima Nikaya, the Buddha teaches that the aggregates of the mind-body process, each and every one of them should be regarded as This is not mine, this I am not, this is not myself. And he actually advises Rahula, actually, when he's teaching him him that tenth preparation for meditation, to actually, when he notices these things, to do that reflection, this is not mine, this is not I, this is not myself. And I think it's really brilliant. We all know this conceptually, and many of us might know it in a moment, you know, know it in a moment uh, with insight too, that all of these things that we think that we are, you know, it's as if those things are solid and continue to be identities wherever we're at. And are they? They're not. You know, our panyamana, our education and... Uh, uh, even insights, you know, within the Sangha, maybe, 
we people afford an identity to us or because of our insights or because I just graduated from this program or whatever, but nobody else cares about that. If I would carry that around with me and exert that and exert that, you know, I want you to know this about me. I mean, what is that? That's a pretty, uh, that's a pretty, um, you know, me trying to get some measure of well-being or some measure of uh, just freedom, you know, based on something that's really temporary and very conditional. It's not permanent. It's not there all the time. That knowledge is not what's needed. Well, I believe that we practice the Dharma all the time, but that particular training program is only, uh, you know, relevant, you know, a pretty, not that much of my life. And the same could be said of other ways that, you know, we have our identities that we want to drag around with us. We want to drag them around with us and exert them in this place or that place. And, uh, you know, it's just creating separation between us and others. It's a source of separation. So the Buddha taught Rahula that this reflection, this is not mine, this, this I am not, this is not myself. And I actually play with those terms a lot. I think you can play with them. Uh, the first thing that we might do is to um, really uh, be on the lookout for conceit be on the lookout for ways that our identities get constructed of, well, I'm this and I'm that, or I'm not this or I'm not that. I'm better in this situation. I'm worse in this situation. Or, you know, everybody's equal in this situation. There should be no exceptions. You know, there should be one rule for what's going on here because everybody is equal. So that would be one thing is to look for Panyamana and Dhanamana and uh, appearance mana and birth mana. I think that would be a wonderful thing in this day and age to look for birth mana, to look, and I'm going to say this as gently as I can. Actually, our wonderful teacher, um, Tara Brock, did you see that? She just wrote a beautiful article about using mindfulness to really look at white privilege. It's really getting a lot of press. People are circulating it a lot. And I know in our Sangha in Seattle, they actually have a white allies group, just a bunch of you know, white practitioners that are meeting to try to investigate with mindfulness how to uproot racism and sexism and all the isms. I mean, boy, I'm just going to get choked up thinking about it. It's such a beautiful expression of wanting to uproot... Um, uh, Jatamana, right? It's trying to uproot that and really see it very clearly. It makes us, you know, it makes many of us feel safer, right? It's like, well, you're really looking to try to uproot that. I feel safer with you. So to just look at it, recognize conceit whenever it pops up and name it. You know, it's like Mara. You could, it's like Mara, right? Like, Mara, I see you. And then another is to, uh, to explore bowing. Bowing is an interesting way to actually feel conceit. I remember the very first time, it was 1982, and my very first retreat actually was a month-long retreat in uh, Nepal, right outside of Nepal, at Kopan Monastery. 
a Tibetan Buddhist monastery. And I went there, you know, I didn't really know that much about it, but I said, oh, okay, I'll go hang out here for a month. It was like $50 for a month, you know, room and board. It's like, wow, that's a good deal. And, you know, exquisite teaching by Lama Yeshi and Lama Zupa Rinpoche, like exquisite teaching. It was incredible. And I remember I was there like two weeks and everybody was bowing, you know, everybody was doing the thing. And I hadn't bowed yet. There was probably maybe a couple dozen of us of maybe 100 people who obviously weren't, you know, hadn't kind of, um, committed yet and so we weren't bowing and I remember I actually have a really vivid memory the first time I bowed I could feel it I could feel like the arrogance it was like you know you're bowing what is it with the bow and just that um, maybe it was Jatamana was one of the manas for sure just that sense of you know I'm bowing to them, you know? And that was actually a very Western, I think, conceptualization of what a bow is. Because I think it means something very different in that culture and in other Asian cultures. But it was an excellent exercise in what, what mana feels like, what it feels like in the body and in the heart. So, you know, as with all of uh, what we are learning, that the way to overcome conceit and um, is to just commit, I think, make an intention to open to it completely with as much compassion as we can, right? Just to set a intention. I set the intention to open up to my panyamana or ways my identities or construction that create separation and uh, entitlement and privilege and you know those things in a really gentle way, in a loving way. Because uh, if I do that, when I see it in other people, I could say, yeah, I know that, right? And uh, actually maybe um, let go of some resentment or some aversion I have when I see that in other people. It's a way for us to open to other people and not make them the enemy right away, right? You know, as I said, one of my um, enduring uh, reflections right now is that we are all perpetrators. We are all perps of greed, hatred, and delusion. So another, um, so, uh, and in this regard, you know, my teacher Joseph would always say, I would come in saying, oh, wow, I'm seeing all of this negativity. And I know all of us are experiencing this right now. Like we're seeing all of this stuff, all of these unwholesome mental habit patterns. And, you know, I would go in and tell Joseph, wow, I'm just overwhelmed with all this stuff. And he said, are you kidding? That's great stuff. You're seeing it, you know. Wouldn't you rather see it than not see it? You know, wouldn't you rather see, you know, what is influencing your, um, you know, your actions of body, speech, and mind? And then one other thing to know about this particular form of conceit you know, there's the conceit of thinking that you have a soul and a conceit of, you know, the identity of thinking you have a soul and, and the identity associated with your possessions. This particular one, this associated with these four elements and these three types is actually one of the very last things to be uprooted before awakening. I think it's the last thing to be uprooted. I think it's the last fetter before awakening or it's, it's like the... Uh, second or last, I think it's the last one to be uprooted. Uh, yeah, actually, the Buddha 
That was what he, that's what he felt right on the moment of enlightenment. He said, who am I to be enlightened? No, Mara came to him and said, who are you to be enlightened? So that was his inferiority conceit. He had it at that moment. And we know what he did, right? He had the earth bear witness to his right to be awakened. So, um, so just opening as much as we can, making it a focus of what's arising in us. Another is to make resolves, and I've been talking in the groups about resolves. Um, you know, we can make resolves for that. We could say, um, and actually when we see it, we could use the phrase that the Buddha taught his son. This is not mine. Um, you know, I am not this identity. This is not myself. And then uh, what the Buddha actually taught Rahula with seeing that is to see the impermanence of all of those identities. Um, and so many other teachers say that the quickest way to insight is just to see the impermanence in everything. And to see the impermanence of these identities is really useful. It actually, uh, you know, you really see the momentary nature of it, the identity coming up and going away, what actually is the cause and condition for the identity to come up and, you know, how long it stays and how it goes. And, you know, when we're able to see that, we are, you know, extracting the wisdom out of that with our mindfulness. And then wisdom lets go of those identities. It really kind of loosens that knot, loosens that knot of suffering and of clinging. So we need to develop the perception of inconsistency as to uproot the conceit of I am. Actually, this is what the Buddha said. He said, uh, develop the perception of inconsistency so as to uproot the conceit I am. For a monk perceiving inconsistency, the perception of not-self is made firm. One perceiving not-self attains the uprooting of the conceit I am. Okay, I'm going to read something that, um, that actually the exact instructions, well, according to the sutta, uh, of what the Buddha said to Rahula. And it was so interesting. So according to the sutta, Rahula called his dad Venerable Sir. But that's cool. Venerable Sir. <laughs> I think my dad would have liked that. <laughs> Sir, how should one know, how should one see, so that in regard to this body with consciousness, in regard to all external signs, eye-making, mind-making, and the underlying tendency to, to conceit no longer occur within. Any kind of form whatsoever, Rahula, whether past, a form in the past, in the future, or in the present, an internal form or an external form, gross or subtle, if it's inferior or superior, if it's near or if it's far. One sees all forms as it really is with correct wisdom thus. This is not mine. This I am not. This is not myself. Any kind of feeling whatsoever, and, and the Buddha goes through all of the aggregates with Rahula, any kind of feeling so any kind of perception was the first. Any kind of feeling. Um, 
any kind of perception, any kind of volition or intention, any kind of consciousness whatsoever, any of that in the past, in the future, in the present, internal or external, whether it's gross or subtle, whether you deem it inferior or superior, whether it's near or far, one sees all consciousness, all of these aggregates, form, feeling, metaformations, perception and consciousness, we see all of these formations as impermanent. We see their impermanent nature. How could they be us if they are just coming and going, coming and going? How is it that we could have an identity associated with that? How can we grasp onto that as an identity? That's just not seeing the truth of it, right? Not seeing the truth of it. So he says, any of those as it really is with correct wisdom thus. We see all of those as it is with correct wisdom thus. This is not mine, this is not, uh, this I am not, this is not myself. So this is what our dear friend Lila Kate Wheeler says. She says, and this is getting back to that notion of a bow, a bow as a way to see some of this. Because a bow to yourself, you could bow to yourself and actually get rid of some inferiority conceit too, right? Just really honor, <laughs> honor yourself and get rid of that inferiority, identity of inferiority. So it's not even so much, you know, this better than, worse than, because it's a spectrum or equal to, it's really how identities are created and what measurement does, right? It's about the measurement. It's about the measurement and how the measurement in itself is creating an identity of I am this, I am this. So this is what Kate Lila Wheeler says. A true bow is not a scrape. Many on this path, both men and women, carry a legacy of too many years of scraping, cowering, and self-belittlement, rooted in belief in their own unworthiness. The path to renouncing scraping can be long and liberating, a reclaiming of dignity, and a letting go of patterns of fear. Discriminating wisdom, which we are never encouraged to renounce, clearly understands the difference between a bow and a scrape. A true bow can be a radical act of love and freedom. As Suzuki Roshi put it, when you bow, there is no Buddha and there is no you. One complete bow takes place. That is all. This is nirvana. And then I have one last saying by Wei Wu Wei. This is what he says. Do you realize that when you give a shilling to a beggar, you are giving it, giving it to yourself? Do you realize that when you help a dog over a step, you are helping yourself, you yourself are being helped? Do you realize that when you kick a man when he is down, you are kicking yourself? Give him another kick, you deserve it. <laughs> Give him another kick, you deserve it. So let's sit for a minute. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.